Turn to the book of John, please. The book of John, chapter 20. We're going to look at eight verses, verse 10 through 18, and talk about the significance of this day and what it means for us. This is John, chapter 20, 10 through 18. Let me read it, and then we'll um, pray, and we'll, we'll get into it. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Well, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will, get, and I will go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with that news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said those things to her. This is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, would you please, Holy Spirit, would you please show us um, the power of your resurrection? We want to meditate on it and think about it from different angles and really turn it over on the palate of our minds. God, would you give us good and right thinking when it comes to this incredible truth? God, and I pray that you would, um, I could just get out of your way and you would speak to us very powerfully. Change us, Lord, more and more into your image. No matter where we're at in our journey with you, may each of us be a little bit closer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There are a handful of essential beliefs Um, that are absolutely integral when it comes to Christianity, that make it what it is. It wouldn't be Christianity if you removed certain beliefs. There are other things that are what we call secondary. They're debatable, and they probably always will be in debate until we are in heaven and some of these things are revealed to us. But we can take different stances on certain things in Christianity and still be Christians, still be followers of Christ, but there are certain things that are essential things, and they are, if you were to dismantle Christianity from these beliefs, it would cease being Christianity by definition at that point. You know, things like salvation by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the triune nature of God, the divinity of Jesus Christ, and so on. Those are things that they're they're closed-fisted issues. Those are things that we hold to that define us who we are, that make us different than any other religious group or any other demographic, religiously speaking. But all of these things, out of all these things, I would say the most essential belief that sustains Christian faith is the resurrection. It is the most important of all. Without the actual historical resurrection, I'll just start off by saying Christianity means nothing. It is nothing. It's pitiful. We, gathered here, are pitiful if this is not real. It's a lie if it's not real. Can you imagine waking up one day or realizing one day that what you've been believing, what you've been following, what you've been giving yourself to, what you've been putting your faith into and leaning your weight on is not real. And if there is no resurrection, that's where we all are. 
Christianity is completely dependent on the resurrection, and this text tells us why. What is the meaning of the resurrection? Why is it so important? Why is it so important that it's true? What kind of grace does it release into our lives, and what in the world does it mean for you today? Not just on this day, but your life here, now, every day, what does the resurrection mean? Those are the four things. This text has it all. It's got those four things. The meaning, why it's, imp- why it's so meaningful to Christians. It also talks about the truth of the resurrection and why it, it is objectively true. The grace of the resurrection. And also what it means for us right now, today. So let's just jump in. Number one, the meaning of the resurrection. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now here's what's really interesting about this to me. Notice that John takes great care to include interesting details in this account. Not only are there two angels, not only um, does he record what they say to Mary, but also he records what position they're sitting in inside the tomb. One angel was at the head of the rock slab where Jesus' body had been, and one angel was at the foot of the rock slab where Jesus has been. Why take pains to record something so trivial? Why is he trying to get us to picture it in this way? Why not just focus on the narrative or or on the message of these celestial beings rather than the position in the tomb of these celestial beings? And the answer is that this is a cultural or religious hint. It's a very big cultural or religious hint to an ancient scene within the minds of, of John's Jewish audience. Jewish folks would have understood what was going on. In the center of the Jewish temple was an inner room called the Holy of Holies. It's hard for us to imagine this in the the modern world. But in the center of the temple was this inner room called the Holy of Holies. And this was the room where it was said the very presence of God dwelt. We talked about that Last week when we talked about Palm Sunday and the importance of the temple. Because in the Jewish mind, God was there. His presence was there. That's where you went to meet God face to face. And specifically in the inner room in the Holy of Holies. And there was only one man. The holiest man in all of Israel. From the holiest family. The high priest. He was the only person allowed to go into this room. He went in on behalf of all the people. He kind of stood in as a vicarious replacement for all the people. He represented the people to the presence of God, and then he went back out and represented God to the people. He was the high priest. But even then, this high priest could not go in whenever he wanted. It had to be one day. There was one day out of the year. He couldn't go in whenever he wanted. He was not allowed into that room to the holy, uh, except one day. That's Yom Kippur. And he had to make atonement for the sins of the entire nation. And he had to come with blood. The blood of a sacrificed animal. So the holiest man from the holiest nation, from the holiest family, only one day a year and only with blood sacrifice. So in the middle of Jerusalem was the temple, and in the middle of the temple was this room, the Holy of Holies, and you know it was in the middle of that room. If you've seen you know, Raiders of the Last, Lost Ark, if you've seen any Indiana Jones movie, you know that the Ark of the Covenant, a wooden box that was overlaid with gold, and inside that box had three relics that each pointed to a piece of Israel's history. You guys remember what those relics are? There, what was that? Manna? Yes. How God provided from them for the wilderness. Anyone else? Yeah, the, the Aaron's staff that miraculously budded. And someone said tablets. A copy of the Ten Commandments were in there as well. Um, and you know, these three artifacts, if you, if you know the story, they not only symbolize God's faithfulness, but they also symbolize Israel's abject failure. These were not happy memories when it came to Israel. 
The Ten Commandments, Israel had broken all, every one of them before they could even be delivered. You remember they were worshiping the golden calf as Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments. This huge breach of trust and major betrayal right after God had rescued them miraculously out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea. Israel goes by Mount Sinai. God says these beautiful romantic words to them. I rescued you on eagle's wings. I, I, you're my treasured people, my treasured possession. And they say, that's so great. We love it. And then 40 days later, they're, they're constructing a golden calf and they're worshiping another God saying, this is our God, O Israel. Just absolute betrayal into God's heart. That's what the Ten Commandments, I'm sure, reminded them of. Um, the rod that budded. About 250 of Israel's leaders tried to usurp Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron fell on their face before God, and they, they said, hey, here's what we'll do. Everybody, all the leaders here, take your staff, your walking sticks, and we'll put it in the Holy of Holies overnight. These dead sticks, and the one that buds in the morning, that's got buds on it, that will be God's way of telling us who his leader is, and the dispute will be ended at that point. And Aaron's rod not only budded, but it flowered and had, I think, a cluster of grapes or something dangling off of it. It was obvious, and it was a sign of their rebellion and them questioning God's authority. And then the manna reminded them of their grumbling and their distrust in the wilderness. God had miraculously brought them through Egypt, and then as soon as they felt some hunger pains, as soon as they didn't see any supermarkets or any way to, um, to meet their hunger, they started to complain. We're out here to die. God's going to leave us here to die. God's mean. He didn't, oh, turns out he wasn't saving us from Egypt. He was saving us so we'd just die in the wilderness. He's a cruel, like, you know, what we do as kids with a magnifying glass with ants. We just try to, we just want to watch them fry. It was kind of there, well, at least... I've heard of other people who have done that. <laughs> that was their vision of God, and God provided this, uh, so God provided, graciously provided this wafer-like substance. They didn't know quite what it was, but it miraculously appeared every day, and it sustained them day by day, just one day at a time, sustained them miraculously through the, the wilderness. But it was a sign of this grumbling so what was in the middle of God's presence? Reminders of Israel's sins, failures, and their inability to follow and trust God faithfully. That was in the, in the, in, in the middle. So in the middle of the world is Israel, and at the center of Israel is Jerusalem, and at the center of Jerusalem is a temple, and at the center of, a t of the temple is a room called the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwells, and there in the presence of God is a record of all the nation's sins, of their failure, of their chronic disobedience and rebellion. But that's not all. Because on top of the box, you remember, is this lid that the, that the Hebrew people called the mercy seat. It was what they thought to be the throne of the king of the cosmos, the throne of Yahweh, the throne of God himself. And the mercy seat was this gold slab with two angels on each side of it, one at the head, one at the foot. And in, the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 25, uh, verse 22, God spoke to the nation. This is what he said. He says, there... Above the cover, that's that slab, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the, of the Covenant, I will meet with you there. There at that throne is where you and I will meet, where we'll have fellowship. The, the tabernacle that we learned last week and the temple was decorated like the Garden of Eden. You've got this idea of Israel, humanity, moving back into the fellowship of God where they would be restored again. It was his invitation, I'll meet you back in the garden, back in the sacred place, back in my sacred cosmic temple. That's where we'll meet, and that's where your sins will be atoned for. And that's what Yom Kippur was all about, the day of atonement. All their sins are before God as symbols in these three relics in the ark, 
and someone's got to pay for these crimes. It's this day of reckoning. That's what the, but once a year, Yom Kippur was a day of reckoning. So the high priest would take a substitute on this day, the blood of a bull, and the whole nation would pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would wait outside, they would all gather in, this, in the temple courts, in the, uh, um, in the outer courts, they would gather and they would watch the high priest shakily and scarily make his way into the Holy of Holies where he's going to have an encounter with God. For the ancient people, this was not metaphorical or symbolic. The presence of God was there. And he, like Adam before him, like Abraham, like Moses, like Aaron and the Levite, the Levitical priests, he was going to go in and he was going to have an encounter with God on behalf of the people. And he dare not go without blood. And he went in there and he took the blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to show that sins had been paid for. And the whole nation would come to Jerusalem. In Jesus' in Jesus's time, Josephus tells us that about two million people were crammed into Jerusalem at this particular Passover when Jesus was there from all over the world. And he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. And the crowd outside would wait anxiously for the priest to come out. And when the priest would finally come out, there would be silence just picture millions, thousands, millions of people silence and the priest would, enter, would utter a word, forgiven. And at that moment, the crowd would go crazy. It'd be a party. It'd be a festival. It meant our sins are absolved. God accepted the sacrifice that the priest brought in for our sins. I don't have to be guilty, ashamed. There's no more separation between us and God. We're free. Another, so think of, think of this. Think of your past year. Think of the pain, the mistakes. Think of the failures. Think of the regrets, the things that, you know, the things that at night, when you remember that thing that you did, you want to push it out of your mind because you're still embarrassed about it. You still don't like to think about that or think about those thoughts. Think about your intentions. Think about your manipulation. Think of all the fights and arguments that you've gotten in with loved ones. Think of the loved ones that you've hurt and that have hurt you. Think of, all, think of the whole year the priest comes out and he says, forgiven, you have permission to let it go. You're clean. Oh, and it would be a feast time, a celebration of joy. The crowd outside would just go crazy with this amazing celebration because it meant that God had accepted the substitute and they were right with God again. All that year's sins nationally were absolved to never be remembered again, but only, only if the priest made it out. Only if he came out. Only if he came out of the presence. And so here we are, back to our text. Here's Mary weeping. And she looks into the tomb and Jesus isn't there. But what is there? Well, she sees a slab. And if you read the beginning of the chapter, you'll see that the grave clothes, the clothes that the body of Jesus was wrapped in for burial, no doubt with blood stains on them, they were still lying there on that slab, you'll read in the beginning of the chapter. So there's blood, there's a slab, there's blood, and there's an angel at the head, and there's an angel at the feet, and Jesus isn't there. Do you see the picture that John is, po is pointing his Jewish followers to? He's saying Jesus is the sacrifice that now ends all sacrifices. Our sins are absolved cosmically, not just for the year, but for your life, past, present, and future. And he's the priest that ends all priests. He's this eternal priesthood. And he's not there. He's left he went in before the presence of God and presented himself as the sacrifice. And then in the resurrection, he came out. The resurrection, here's what it means. This is the meaning of the resurrection. This is why it's so important for Christians 
The resurrection means that God has accepted Jesus as a substitute for your crimes and your sins and your intentions and your dirty hearts and our chronic rebellion and our lack of trust, our grumblings, our complainings, our doing things our way, thinking that we know better than God, thinking that we actually have some kind of wisdom that God doesn't have, and on and on it goes. All of, our, all of it, from small to big, absolved, forgiven. This is why every one of you, if you're a follower of Christ, you can walk out that door today with your head held high. You have permission to forget your sins, to not let them weigh you down anymore. You have permission to reject thoughts of shame and guilt and regret. You've got divine permission because he's not there. Amen. That's right. When I, when I was um, working in Bellevue, there was a kid who broke uh, the state record for, what's, it's not bench, what is it, where you do the squatting one? What is that called? Is it a squat? Is that what it is? But it's got the bar? Deadlift. Thank you. And um, I went and watched him at the high school. It was crazy. And a guy from the state came out and watched him, and this kid, he was like 16, 17, he had, you know, legs the size of me, and he, the bar, I remember watching from the side, the bar was bent over his shoulders. He had towels and everything, the bar was bent, and when he was done, the, uh, the blood vessels in his, in his eyeballs had popped. He had these, I mean, it was insane. And he took this thing, and he went down, and the state guy was, was watching with a, like a measuring rod, was watching. And he made it to the level, and now it would not have counted unless that kid would have gotten up with it. It, was, it would have been good, and it would have been admirable had he tried. I mean, I could do that and die from it. You know, I could go down, and that's it. But it didn't break the record. It didn't count in the state record book, unless that kid got up with that weight. That's why the cross is not, is not effective without the resurrection. Jesus took the weight of the world, the sins of the world, past, present, and future for all of world history on his shoulders. Think of the bent, the bend there that was on his back, nailed to a cross. Now, that would have been, you know, we, we would think, wow, that's a nice try. Thanks for, A for effort. But we'd still be lost in our sins unless he hadn't gotten up and walked out. That's, the resurrection verifies the crucifixion. It means so much to us. And we're all, we're all still lost in our sins unless he got up and left and said, death, where is your sting? Do you see what John is getting at here? Notice, look at this. In light of this, the angels, look at their question to Mary now makes complete sense. Their question in verse 13, the angels ask her, woman, why are you crying? Do you get it now? In other words, you should be rejoicing. You should be, the weight of of your life is now off of you. You should be rejoicing. We've won. It means you've won in all your trials, Mary, in all your suffering, in all your uncertainty, in all your darkness. Light has shone forth and we've won. Dear friends, do you understand? You are completely, utterly, 100% forgiven. You don't got to dwell on your past anymore. You're free. And that's what the resurrection means for you and me. It means a life of unrelenting joy in the midst of grief and uncertainty. Christians, Christianity is, is the religion of great joy, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of sorrow. It means a hope that cannot be crushed no matter what happens in the news or what happens in, you know, global politics or what happens. We have a joy that cannot, a hope that cannot be crushed. It means laughter. It means singing. It means dancing. This is why I love Easter so much. After Easter, 
my family and I join with other families. You know what we do? We go to someone's house and we sit around a lavish table and we have some really good prepared food and we pour some wine and we laugh and we cry and we play games and we rejoice. We talk about the resurrection. We're all around a table. It's a, it's a, it's a taste of heaven. It's a taste of Isaiah chapter two where all the nations will feast on the mountain of God. We'll be there. Think of it. This is the Bible's This is the Bible's high view of human future. A new humanity that would be around the presence of God, rejoicing, no more pain, no more tears, no more war, no more nuclear weapons, no more megalomaniacs running things, no more of it. Around God's throne, with joy, looking at each, we'll see each other there. We'll be around the table, we'll see each other with tears in our eyes and we'll be like, we won, we made it. We did it because he did it first. Today, I hope you think of that when you gather with your friends and your family. That you just take a moment at your table and just look. Hear the laughter. Look in the faces of the people around you and just drink it in. It's a dim hint of what's to come. Now, most people in the modern world hear that and they say, well, that's really good. Good for you. You know, if that gives you hope and strength to get through life, then more power to you. That's really great. In other words, if it works for you, it doesn't really matter if it's true necessarily. You know, we have science now, so we know there's no really any miracles or resurrection or things like that. But if you want to believe you know, in the metaphorical meaning of the resurrection, if that's what gives you strength to get through this life, that's so great. Good for you. What matters is that evolution has made us spiritual people to release certain endorphins and chemicals to help us survive. So this is, we're following, this is good. This is really good. But John and the rest of the gospel writers makes it clear that the meaning of the resurrection, listen, Uh, We just need to be as blunt as the Bible. The meaning of uh, the first point of the sermon, how meaningful it is, means nothing unless it's true. And when you believe in something with all your heart and it's not true, we don't call that admirable, we call that pitiful. It's a sad thing. It evokes sadness and pity when you see somebody that believes in something, living their whole life for something and it's not true. Uh, Christians in here, just think of your life. <clears throat> think, of all the, think of the way you live because of Jesus. Think about the sacrifices you make because of Jesus. Think of, the thing, think of the things that you deny yourself, that you really want because of Jesus. Think of the suffering that you go through because you don't let your, yourself out of certain situations that you, because of Jesus. And think if it's not true, if this didn't really happen. What do you think? Is that, that's sad. That's sad. You and I can see, really see this well in John's account. We've, been, um, we've seen the meaning of the resurrection, but now John's going to show you the truth of it. Around this time of year, <clears throat> all these, if, you, if you're in any supermarket in Seattle, all these magazines or if you're if you've got if you're watching tv these documentaries and articles and books and essays are released by highly funded reputable institutions um, sourcing i'll just be honest outdated scholarship very outdated scholarship if you want to know the truth that will say that, and what they almost all have in common is the belief that the gospel accounts are just legends written some 100 or 200 years after the events actually took place. The argument goes something like this. They say, you know, in the first century Palestine, there was a man indeed named Jesus who was a religious moral teacher, and he developed a pretty substantial following there. Um, and we know all that, we can verify that all that's true, but this Jesus didn't claim to be God. His followers didn't think he was God. 
He was killed by the Roman government, but the resurrection was added to the story many, 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 many years after the actual events by people trying to recruit followers to this new religion. They were trying to keep it going. They're trying to you know, make this myth out of it. So the gospel accounts are legends written much later by people using these legends as propaganda to gain momentum for their movement. And it worked. Astoundingly, it worked. It's now become the, the biggest, most powerful religion the world has ever seen because of this. And I can understand that. I could really, I could, I mean, I could buy into that if it wasn't for the fact that the gospel accounts, including the one we're reading to, this morning, doesn't, it doesn't read like a legend. Have you ever read a, a Greek legend before? Or uh, have you read the legend of Arthur? Camelot, you know, all those types of things. If you compare, and I've done it, you should do it, it's eye-opening. If you want to compare ancient Near Eastern legend or Greek legend or even further into the mid, uh, medieval age legend compared to the Gospels and you find two very different documents. I mean, just go through the, this chapter alone and look at all the details. Let me just point some out to you. Mary was at the tomb before sunrise. It gives a specific time. Mary sees the tomb is empty, doesn't go in because it's probably dark and scary, but came and told Peter and John. They both ran to the tomb. John outran Peter, but then he stopped outside the tomb, and then Peter went in. Look at all the detail here. John starts to believe. They leave and go back to their homes. The point is, this just doesn't read like, a, if, again, if you compare the two, it doesn't read like a legend. There's weight. This reads like someone's memory. It reads like someone said, we did this first, and then when this happened, and then I outran him, and then he came, and I stopped, and he went in, and then the, it, it's, it's a telling of the way someone rec, is recollecting the event. This, is, this reads like eyewitness testimony. And then, if this is invented, some of the details would not inspire confidence in the leadership of this new religion. Let me show you. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, this is verse one of your chapter, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples start for the tomb. Okay, this boggles my mind. I hope it boggles yours. One of the mo if you read the gospel accounts, one of the most consistent things across every single gospel account is that every one of the gospel writers recounts that time after time after time after time after time again, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to raise from the dead. He said it over and over, and, it was, and not even cryptically. He bluntly said this. I'm, I'm going to raise from the dead. I'm going to come back to life. Now, their leader even told them, not just that it was going to happen, he even told them the day it was going to happen. Three days later, guys, like, you know, Siri, put in my calendar three days from now. You'd think they'd make note of that. Now, you know how it is. I mean, just think of it, when, it, when, it, when Apple says, we're coming out with a new iPhone, what happens? People mark the day and they line up outside those stores and sometimes it curls around the store a few times because they know that a company says a product is being released that they want, they'll go, they will make a point. Some people take time off work and they go to get their new iPhone or their new whatever it is. Jesus Christ, according to the gospel writers, told them time after time, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to raise again from the third day. And here it is on the third day and not one of his disciples are even there. Not one shows up. Not one, not one person said, we should go, we should go, you know, he said that, we should probably just, let's, what do you, what do you say, let's just go camp outside the, outside the tomb. Only Mary is there. 
Only Mary is there. And she was a woman in a highly patriarchal society. Neither the Jews, Greeks, or Romans thought much of women. In fact, for Jews, their testimony wasn't admissible in court by the very fact that they were a woman. But don't give too much credit to Mary because when she saw the empty tomb, the last thought on her mind was that Jesus had been raised from the dead. She thought someone took the body somewhere. She wasn't even thinking that it was a possible thing. So here's what a lot of modern scholars will tell you. Well, back then... People believed in myths and stuff. You know, they weren't as highly scientific and advanced as we are today. They weren't as skeptical. So they could buy things like resurrections and things like that. Not according to, the, not according to this. Not according to the Bible itself. If they were so believing in resurrections and things like that, why didn't they show up? And then Mary goes there, and she's not expecting this to happen at all. Because you don't know why, what they saw. They saw Jesus nailed to a cross. They saw it. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a, someone die before or a dead body, but it has a feeling of finality to it. The Bible says that he was unrecognizable as a human being. You know, a lot of people are smart people even, are, you know, dumb enough to say that Jesus was faking it. Maybe he wasn't really nailed to the cross. Maybe he was just beat up a little bit and wasn't as badly hurt as he thought. I've actually heard that come out of very smart people. Even if this, even if this was a fabrication, the, the historical crucifixion account of, a, of the way people died, no one could fake that. No one could fake that. No one could survive something like that and then be strong enough to roll the, a stone away from a tomb and walk out. Mary wasn't expecting this because she watched him breathe his last. The point is that if any of them even partially took Jesus seriously, they would at least have come out of curiosity, but no. Now, if I were going to invent a story to inspire people to follow my new religion, I would probably leave that part out. A religion that would end up being the largest, most influential, world-altering religion in, in human history, no less. I wouldn't invent, in a patriarchal society, that a woman was the first person to see the risen Jesus. That would have immediately discredited, discredited my story. If I was just trying to invent something to get something moving, immediately that was, would have discredited it. This would have completely undermined the credibility of the, uh, for the entire culture. I wouldn't write that I forgot to show up to the most miraculous event in history. That I just didn't think it was that important. I wouldn't do that. No, listen, the point is, the only possible reason that these details are here, in my mind, the only, there is no other possible motivation or reason unless these things just happen that way. They're just telling the truth. They're writing it as it happened, even with all the embarrassing parts that we weren't there for it. Why does it matter? Why is it so important to the gospel writers to show us that this is an actual event that actually happened on this planet in our history? Why is that so important for Christians? Well, like we said, people in the modern day would say, well, if it works for you and strengthens you, gets you up another day, that's great. But the gospel writers would listen to modern, that modern line of thinking and they would say, that's ludicrous. It only works if it's true. The resurrection has no meaning or power if it didn't really happen. Think about this. Only if it's true will the resurrection make a difference in your life. Only if it's true. And if it's not true, then it's pitiful. And the gospel writers came out and said that themselves. This is Paul. He said, for, for if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That means meaningless. You're here for no reason this morning. 
you're still in your sins. If only for this life, that's the subjective existential Christianity. Just, you know, hey, it's just for, to get you through the tough times. It's called, if you want the term for it, it's called Christian existentialism. It means it only matters if Jesus subjectively raised it for you. It doesn't, the objective reality doesn't matter. Paul says right here, he says, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Think of all the horrible things that are going on in this world right now. There's a lot. more, And I said this last year and the year before. Now we're going through some tough stuff a year later. We're going through some hard things right now. It's like getting worse. Think of all the pain, the suffering, all the death and the hurt. How in the world... Can we have the audacity as Christians or the nerve to look people in the eye and say that God's going to make things better? It's insulting at that point if this isn't true. How do I have the nerve to look at people who are dying and assure them that they can live again? I attended a few funerals this year. How can I have the nerve to look at those family members and say, your son's alive more, now more than ever. How dare I say something like that if it's just a subjective hope? That is rude, insulting, and downright abusive. How can I keep telling people who fail over and over again and lapse and relapse that God loves them and forgives them and cleanses them? How can I tell you that God loves you and will never let you go? How can I say that? How can you be sure, not just hope, but be absolutely sure that you will raise from the dead only if Jesus lives? Only. Only if you know that he really actually lives. Jesus lives and so will I. That's the only reason it works. The only reason we have hope. The only reason I can face my failures. The only, re- the only, way, I can f- the only way you can face the future The only way that we can face anything and be tough enough to handle it is if this is true. Thirdly, let's look at the grace of the resurrection. This is verse 14. It says, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, just the way he said her name. She turned around and she cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The grace in this passage is for Mary. uh, There's so much I want to say here, but I I have to keep it short, which is, is, I'm going to prove to you that it is somewhat possible. She is the first person that Jesus decided to reveal himself to. Think of that. She's the first person that Jesus decided to, it's no coincidence. She's not there by chance or just at the right place or at the right time. No, she was intentionally chosen by Jesus. How do we know? Prove it, Mike. How do you know? Well, Jesus could have revealed himself to Mary at any time, right? He could have showed up at any time. Before Peter and John got there, he could have revealed himself to Mary. He could have revealed himself to Mary while Peter and John were there. But he waits for Peter and John to leave, to go back to their places. And then he reveals himself. He wanted a private moment to reveal himself just to Mary. Well, what are some interesting things we know about Mary? Well, one, she's a woman, not a man. Like we said, in a patriarchal society. It's very significant. It's the first thing that Jesus is hoping his resurrection power reverses and turns over. This discrimination based on anything, but in this case, on gender. Not only that, but she has a dark, a really dark past. Not only is she a social outcast because of her gender, she's also got a really dark past. Luke 8 tells us that Jesus cast out seven evil spirits from this very same Mary. Okay? In Semitic cultures, the number seven is a number that means completion. It means she was completely evil. That's what it means. It was a complete denigration of her humanity. 
Think of people that you see on the streets. Think of people that we're hoping UGM will give us more insight and tools into ministering to. People that you drive by and you think, oh, there's no hope. That was Mary. So far gone, maybe talking to herself, maybe whatever she was doing, she was so far gone. In fact, the only other record we have in the Bible of a person, check this out. I I looked at this, this blew me away. The only other record that we have in the Bible of a person besides Mary with that many evil spirits was a guy that was so lost they had to chain him down. Remember he was in the tombs cutting himself and they had to chain him down. He would break the chains even. Mary's on that level. That's the level Mary's at. She was as lost as a person could possibly be. And even now, she is seeking Jesus. She's loving Jesus. She's passionate for Jesus. She's completely devoted to Jesus that in her mind is dead. She's devoted to a dead person in her mind. She's looking for a dead man. She's not looking for a risen savior. She's out looking for someone who's been defeated. I mean, think... She's, she's thinking she's lost it all. The Jesus she's following has been outmanned, outmaneuvered, outgunned, and outsmarted. That's what it looks like to her. The Jesus she knows has just lost. He was supposed to overthrow Rome. He just got pummeled by Rome. He's, he seems like he's out of control. His plans didn't come to fruition in her mind. The Jesus she loves has been beaten by injustice and lost. She thinks she's in the middle of a disaster right now. She thinks her Lord has been defeated by death. She thinks all is lost. What are you looking for? He says to her. What are you looking for? I wonder if the double meaning of that phrase haunted her for the rest of her life. Because basically what she's saying is, Mary, you love me. But what you think of me was way too, what you've been thinking of me is way too small. You think I'm dead. You think I'm powerless. You think I'm lifeless. You're following a lifeless Jesus. You're devoted, but you're following a lifeless, dead Savior. How's your year been following Jesus? Are there devoted followers of Jesus here that have forgotten that he's alive and that he has power? Are you looking for him amongst the tombs? Are you, celib- are you just staying at Good Friday? It's great that I believe in it, but he really doesn't have much power for me right now. That's where Mary was at. And he's saying, Mary, the reason you can't see me is because you have a very small view of who I am. What are the boxes that have killed Jesus in our minds this year? The assumptions, the places we like to keep him. And because he's got to come the way I think, he's got to be the way I think, we don't see him anymore. Hmm. No, it's someone, you know, notice the order of their dialogue. It's not Jesus and then Jesus turns around, oh, Mary, Nazareth, right? Weird. You know, it's not that that's what's going on. No, it's, it's someone frantically seeking. And Jesus says, Mary. And then she says, teacher. My point is, she's seeking and she's devoted, more devoted than the disciples. We'll give her that. I don't know where they're at. But as much as she's seeking, he still had to be the one to reveal himself to her. He's still the initiator. I think he picked a woman. This is what I think. I think he picked a woman in a patriarchal society with a dark past who's truly seeking but with a really screwed up idea of God to get the point across loud and clear that this salvation, that this resurrection is for everyone. I think he picked her on purpose for those reasons. A woman with a dark, dark past seeking but really confused. Does this match anybody that you know? on the fringe of society, a love for God, but really confused about who God is. This is for, it doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter the mistakes and the failures of your life. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter what your spiritual background is. This Jesus wants to reveal himself today, every day, to you and to me. I think we're all to some degree like Mary. We still have even Christians that have been following Jesus for a long time. We still have misconceptions about the Lord, do we not? Man, I still, if you're not still learning, there's a problem there. If you're not still being in, in awe of things, learning new things, being humbled, you're not growing. You're blind to a certain extent. We can't know everything this side of heaven. We don't know nothing, but we can't know everything this side of heaven. Therefore, we're growing. And we dare not stop. Okay, finally and briefly. That was pretty impressive, I think. By the way, what's also impressive, I just have to say, this shirt. Am I right? I mean, my goodness, the flowers, it's just, I mean, the weather did not, I thought I could will the weather out by putting this shirt on, and it just northwested me. Finally, and briefly, how does this, why does any of this matter today? Does it matter now? Yes. Oh, gosh, may we never forget. Yes. Jesus says something really interesting in his interaction with Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary... This is verse 16. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then Jesus says to her, don't hold on to me. This is really, this this kind of confused me for a really long time. Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father. He's like fixated on on another event. So we've got the crucifixion, the resurrection, But Jesus has got another appointment, another event, another very crucial thing on the redemptive calendar is this thing called the ascension. I'm going to my Father, and it's really important. So what's going on here? First of all, why does Jesus tell her not to touch him, not to hang on to him? What's this whole idea of him ascending? Why not say, go tell my brothers that I've risen and just leave it at that? I mean, that's... Instead, he's just obsessed about this thing called the the ascension, Well, it all goes together. Throughout this whole passage, Mary's weeping. She's anxious. She's got this burning desire for a dead Savior. And then she turns around and she sees a living Savior. And then when Jesus reveals himself to her, I think she just sees him and she just does what you would expect her to do. She's looking for a, a dead Jesus. She hears his voice speak her name. She turns around and I think she just went... Rabboni, and grabbed him. And I think, in fact, the Greek actually goes with me with this. The Greek word uh, for hold on to me could also be translated cling to me. Don't cling to me. So here's what I think happened. Jesus says, Mary. And Mary turns around and says, teacher. And he says, don't hold on to me. I have not yet, you gotta let me go. In other words, I think this is it. If you wanna keep me, You have to let me go. If you want to hold on, if you want me, Mary, all the time, then I've got to ascend. I've got to leave. Earlier, Jesus told his disciples this. He said, hey, it's actually really good that I'm leaving because then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the helper, who will never leave you and never... Right now, Mary wants... She's like, she's basically saying, I'm never letting you out of my sight again. That's what she's saying. I will never let you out of my sight again. And Jesus would say, in effect, well, you have to. Because you're going you're gonna to go places that I can't go with you the way I am now. You know, you, you're going you're gonna to be in, so, you're, you might be in a different social situation where I can't, you, know, she, you might get married or you're going to go to the bathroom or all, all these things where I cannot go with you. Let me go so that I can ascend and my spirit will come in you. The ascension means he takes the throne of heaven. The gospels, as scholar N.T. Wright tells us, the gospels are the story of how God became king. He conquered sin and death and took the throne of David, the cosmic throne promised in the Old Testament. John tells us that it was at his crucifixion that the ruler of this world, there was a ruler, 
that had jurisdiction, that ruler was cast out. In other words, Jesus came to take back the hill, to rule and reign again. The Gospels are the story of how Jesus became king. And he sits, he's sitting right now in control on the throne of heaven and he sends his spirit into you and into me. John 16, seven says, but very truly I tell you, this is Jesus, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. Also John 14, six, same book. And I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. You know, you, you probably, many of you may know the word advocate, paraclete, para, to come alongside, like a paramedic or a, or a paralegal comes alongside you, empowers you to live. That's the idea here, that God is with you, came, coming alongside you, empowering you to follow him in this world. It's actually better that you lose me because then I'll be with you forever. But if he ascends, he, is, he sends his presence into every human heart. And that's why the resurrection means everything. That's why the resurrection means everything. Because it means without the resurrection, he wouldn't be with us right now. Think of this. The God, if you're a follower of Jesus, the God who made the cosmos, the God who makes it rain, the God who makes the flowers bloom the God with the power that drives the oceans lives inside of you do you believe that that kind of power lives inside of you power what do you need you need help raising your kids according to this there is power inside of you you need what do you need you need power to make a difference in our culture there's power in us do you need to raise awareness for something you're passionate about there's power in you or maybe it's you feel powerless just to be a good husband or to be a good wife or to be a good dad or a good mom, there's power in you. Right now. You can forget the regret of your past. That's what the meaning is. Forgiven, free. You can, you're authorized, because of the resurrection, to not dwell on your past. But only if it's true. Only if this really happened. You got, and every one of us has to wrestle with that. Do you believe that this actually happened? If you don't, I love you but don't come back because it would be foolish to come back and keep believing in something that you don't really think is true that actually happened. If you want to access the power, believe it's true. And if it is true, it's just logic. If it is true, if this actually happened, then there is a power inside of you and me that is probably largely untapped. Why? Because we just, because we're out looking for a dead savior, probably. If he's alive, anything is possible. Do you dare to believe it? Sometimes we need death, don't we? Psychologically? Because it's familiar? Kind of like a spiritual Stockholm thing? Like the children of Israel in the desert, they're free, but they keep looking back at Egypt because at least they knew it? Isn't that what stops us sometimes from experiencing this resurrection? I need the cycle that our struggled marriage is in because if I can blame her, then I can feel good about myself. Or I need the dysfunction in my workplace because it makes me feel... We have these things that we, we're basically, we're looking, we're, we're, sell, we're devoted to Jesus, but we kind of need his death. I'm inviting you, I'm challenging you Come out from that. Come out. Dare to believe it can be different. Grab it. Grab hold of it. Don't let this life go by and you're standing before God and he says, oh gosh, you had this powerful vehicle and you never got in and drove it. Or maybe you just took it to the second gear. Ezekiel saw, we'll end with this, Ezekiel saw this vision 
of a river. And some people were only in up to their feet. And some people were in up to their knees. Some people dared to get in waist high. Ezekiel was dive in. Dive in. Dive in. What's, stop being held back. Live every day to the full. Because you can. You don't have to be held by the past or the grave clothes anymore. Let's, let's be radical enough to do it and to live with that quality of power and resurrection life as he continues to give us faith to do it throughout the year, starting now. Amen? Amen. Amen.